Welcome to Questions That Matter. My name is Daniel Abraham and I'm joined by Thomas Sakaria. Today we are asking the most asked questions of our time and that is, does God exist? How do we know if God exists? Sure, I would say a good question to start with. Now when anyone would ask the question, does God exist? Buried in the question is another question and that is, can you prove the existence of God? Can you prove with 100% surety that God exists? But you know, to prove anything with 100% surety apart from pure logic and mathematics is virtually not possible. And for this very reasons, courtrooms today don't require absolute proof to reach a verdict. Rather, they work with what is called as the most probable, the most compelling and the most reasonable argument to dispel their doubts. And besides, the question about God is not a scientific question that it can be proved in a laboratory. It is rather a metaphysical question which deals with the issues that are beyond and above our natural physical world. And therefore, science which is primarily concerned with the natural observable world can never conclusively prove or disprove the existence of God. And therefore, to answer the question, does God exist? We then will have to look at the most probable, the most reasonable arguments such as the logical arguments to give us lead into this question. Well, it's good to know the difference between the physical and the metaphysical and how the question of God's existence is a metaphysical question. So what are the logical arguments that throw light on the existence of God? Sure, so there are three basic arguments. Of course, there are more, but let's look at uh, the three of them today. The first one is the cosmological argument. Now, we know this from science and from philosophy that the universe began to exist. It is not eternal. Of course, for a long time, it was believed that the universe was eternal. But now we know it is not. It began to exist. The Big Bang Theory, the second law of thermodynamics all point to the universe starting at some point in time. Now, because the universe began to exist, logic demands a cause behind its existence. For example, when you hear a bang, your mind assumes that the bang has a cause. It did not come out of nothing. It just can't be right. There must be some person or property behind the bang. Now, why do we need a cause? Again, the principle of cause and effect. Each effect is the result of some cause and each cause is the effect of a prior cause. And because it is untenable to go with infinite number of causes, we have to arrive at what is called as the, the first cause or one cause, which we posit as God, who is the uncreated, the eternal measure of all other causes. So the first is the cosmological argument, which says every effect has a cause. And in this case, we say God alone can be the first uncaused cause. Yes, that's right. The second argument is the teleological argument. The teleological argument examines the structure of the universe and its various intricacies. For example, when you study the largest galactic configurations, our solar system, subatomic particles, everything seems to give the appearance of having been very purposefully arranged. You know, take the human DNA for that matter. The human DNA represents a coding structure beyond the ability of the best human engineers. One study said the amount of information in one cell in your body is equivalent to 500,000 movies. That's a lot of information in there, isn't it? Or take a planet Earth for that matter. It is the only known habitable planet as of now. It's at the perfect distance that is uh, 93 million miles away from the sun. It travels around the sun all 584 million miles once every year and it has been doing this year after year for billions of years ever since it's been put in place. Now you know the Earth follows a specific oval shaped path with great precision. But if it veered from it just one tenth of an inch every 18 miles instead of one ninth of an inch, life could not exist on planet Earth. 
If Earth was a bit closer, there would be too much radiation and it would have been too hot. If it was a bit further, it would be too cold and we would be covered in ice. And besides, our Earth is of the perfect size. If it was a little bit more bigger, gravity would have been much stronger. And if it was a bit weaker, it wouldn't hold our oceans. So when you look at the precision of the universe around, you are then compelled to believe that this complex design, the precise design cannot come from non-life. This is very interesting. Oh, it is mind-boggling. Uh, you know, let me give you another example. Let's assume, Danny, you were lucky enough to land on Mars and you notice this finely cut pieces of rock. Now, you can safely assume that the rock has been precisely cut due to the Martian wind. But let's assume you find a piece of paper with the note, I love you, Danny. Now, this, of course, can't be because of winds. Such an intelligent arrangement of words has to be the work of an intelligent force behind. Now, I know what you're thinking. Aren't you saying perhaps, well, it's been dropped by the previous team that arrived here, weren't you? I was thinking exactly that. Yeah, I told you. I told you I knew what you're thinking. Sure. I mean, even then, aren't you assuming an intelligent being behind an intelligent message? So just as we assume intelligence behind an intelligent work, the stereological argument points to God as the intelligent designer behind the worst intelligence we witness all around us. Wow, that's amazing. It's like behind every building, there is an architect. Behind every book, there is an author. Behind every painting, there is an artist. In short, behind every intelligent work, there is an intelligent force. Beautiful. What is third argument? Sure, the third argument is the moral argument. Moral argument points out that we cross-culturally hold on to what is called as the moral values. These are values that are obvious to us. For example, we all intuitively know torturing an innocent child for fun is wrong. You know, it is C.S. Lewis in his book, Abolition of Men, who says, across cultures, universally, there's common principles that everybody knows and loves as if they are true. Let's say principles of courage and sacrifice and honesty, goodness, uh, truth and love, so on and so forth. Yes, the uh, practices sure will vary from culture to culture, but you see the principles are the same. So the moral argument would say if there are objective moral values, God must exist. There are objective moral values and therefore God exists. Another way of framing the argument would be to say if there is a moral law, it points to a moral law giver. So you have the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and the moral argument. Wonderful. But you know, if someone still says they don't believe in God apart from the arguments, what would you say? Yeah, I would say I do appreciate your view, but to say there is no God is a very tall claim and perhaps one that is hard to sustain. And that is because, uh, let's suppose you want to prove there is no person by the name of Arwind in your hostel. Your area of research will be just the hostel, right? It would require you to go to each room and ask for Arvind and conclusively state that on the basis of my study, my research, I have come to the conclusion that there is no Arvind in the hostel. Now, let's assume you want to prove there is no person by the name of Arvind in your university. You know, you have to go through every nook and corner of your university and, uh, you know, on the basis of your research, on the basis of asking everybody, you come to the conclusion saying, well, I have now on the basis of my study come to the conclusion that there is no Arvind. Let's assume you want to prove there is no person by the name of Arvind in India. 
You see, the more you increase your scope of study, the more difficult it would become even to come to a conclusive statement. And therefore, I would think to say, I'm absolutely sure there is no God is to say, I have an absolute knowledge of his non-existence all throughout the known and unknown universe, which of course, I would think is a very, very tall claim. You know, Norman Geisler and Frank Turek has a book titled, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I do not have enough faith to be an atheist. So some people, instead of saying there is no God, would rather be agnostic who believe there could be a God, but I still do not know him yet. I'm, I'm not yet still sure, which uh, I would think is a very reasonable claim than to say I am an atheist. Uh, you know, I, I, have, I have conclusive uh, you know, uh, understanding of, of, on the basis of my research, on, on, on the basis of my study, I've come to an absolute knowledge that there is no God. I mean, that's too tall a claim to make. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. You had mentioned earlier, there is no way we can be 100% sure about the existence of God scientifically because the question itself is not scientific question, but a metaphysical question. Yes, unless and until God himself stepped down from the metaphysical into the natural physical world. And uh, isn't it what God exactly did when he came into the world as a person uh, called Jesus Christ, that he stepped from the metaphysical into the natural and uh, you know gave us a glimpse of who this God is. Yes, exactly. And perhaps that's the question we'll be looking at in our next episode. Is Jesus God? Thank you for tuning in. Have a wonderful time. God bless.